Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 370 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today I'm really excited because I have a special guest on board. His name is Dave Seminara, and the reason why we're having a conversation today is he's the author of a brand new book called Footsteps of Federer, A Fan's Pilgrimage Across Seven Swiss Cantons in Ten Acts. And Dave's been on an incredible journey, and I'm really excited to talk about it. He's a writer, a former diplomat, a passionate tennis fan who lives in St. Petersburg, Florida. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, BBC, the Washington Post, and dozens of other publications. And he's also the author of two other books that are international bestsellers. So Dave really knows how to put together words in an engaging inspiring way. I've really enjoyed reading this book a lot. And Dave, I'm really excited to dive in and talk about what you've learned about your your journey following Federer. So welcome to the show, Dave. Ian, thank you so much for having me and great introduction. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Really excited. Federer, I mean, what more universally, you know, welcomed topic is there from from tennis players and as you and I discussed briefly via email, my my audience here on on the podcast is super into improvement and development, and I think you know Federer obviously is an incredible story of of perseverance and uh, just making it to incredible you know levels and yet become staying such an incredible down to earth person. I I've got a, a little excerpt here that I'd like to read and then. To kick things off, I'd I'd love to hear your response to it or kind of hear some more insights. Um, You wrote, I used to take tennis for granted, but I never will again after being unable to play for years at a time due to illness and injuries. Roger inspired me to make a comeback. And from a personal perspective, I hope people will read my story and realize that tennis is a gift. So can you please tell us a little bit about that shift in your thinking from prior taking tennis for granted and not anymore? And how is it that Roger inspired you to, to make that, that comeback? Well, I and thanks for that question. It's a very good one. I um, started playing tennis when I was a little boy and my, I always remember my father as a kid would always tell me the great thing about learning tennis is as opposed to other sports is that tennis is a sport for a lifetime. He said, you know, you can play it your whole life. And I think, you know, sort of when you're young and healthy, you do assume that that will be the case. As I think most healthy people do, they figure that, well, I'll be playing until I'm at least in my 70s or 80s or who knows, maybe even beyond. And so I did absolutely take that for granted. But when I was uh, 31, 32 years old, I um, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I had several years where I couldn't play because of that. But um, I came back and um, I played for maybe about a year or so. And then I had, I had a, a knee surgery, a bad knee surgery, and I was out of the sport for a year and a half. And then I came back, and then I got another autoimmune disease starting in 2017, and I was out of the sport for a few years. And um, you know, the, the last autoimmune disease that I had was so bad that my legs and feet were in such bad shape that I actually you know, thought about and asked my doctor about amputating um, my legs from the knee down. It was really that bad. And, um, I never thought I would play tennis again. I really never dreamed that I would be able to play tennis again. I never thought I'd really be able to, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to stand and walk comfortably again. So the idea of tennis was pretty far off at that point in like 2017 and 2018, 
But they told me actually that no, do not amputate your legs. They swore that it would get better in three to five years. And they were right. And uh, when it started to get better in 2019, I started thinking about playing tennis again. And I felt like I'd gone through so much suffering over a period of a couple of years. I honestly felt like I deserved sort of a treat to myself. And I, I hatched this plan to, to go to Switzerland and to see Roger play. And not only that, but to find out much more about, you know, my favorite athlete of all time to travel all over the country, to go to the places I wanted to see, where did he go to school as a boy? Where were the tennis clubs where he learned to play tennis? Where did he live? Um, where did he get married? Everything. And um, I had to find a way to finance that though, because it couldn't very well, I have a wife and two kids. I couldn't very well tell them, Hey, I'm just going to go to Switzerland for a 10 day vacation. Good luck to you. So um, I thought I really want to write about this. And um, I just started pitching publications. Luckily I found one who was able to pay for um, part of my trip. And so off I went. Awesome. Wow. That's incredible. Amazing. And I can only imagine that 2017 to 2018, that mm-hmm. must feel like very uh, close. Like not a lot of time has passed between uh, now and then. I can only imagine how grateful you must feel for over the, the span of just a couple of years, feeling like you'd never play tennis again to now not only playing, but having gone on this incredible journey. I, I'm sure you feel super grateful for that. Well, I do. I mean, as I said to you, like you always take things for granted and I'll, I'll try not to take tennis for granted again once you get back into it. And of course, I'm not playing, you know, anywhere near back at the level that I used to be in my, my mobility is pretty bad, but I can still hit the ball, which is good. And, you know, I learned one of the things that, that I would mention to, to anybody who's had some sort of a bad tennis injury or an illness and is coming back to tennis. One thing I'd really recommend that, that I learned and how I started coming back to is um, finding a club that has a ball machine, mm. which was just, you know, sort of a side doesn't have anything to do with my book. But I would say, too, that like finding a club that has a ball machine is really good because especially if you have very bad or limited mobility, ball machines are your best friend because they'll they'll the ball will bounce right where you expect it to and where you want it to. And you can at least have that feeling of like hitting the tennis ball again and being back on the court again, even if you don't really have full mobility. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. So one, yeah, I'd love to ask an injury related question before we dive into the Federer, uh, journey and everybody listening to this show, any, anybody listening to our conversation right now has dealt with an injury at, at some point in time. Yours was obviously pretty, you know, far on the extreme side of things. And I can only imagine mentally and emotionally, you dealt with some pretty dark periods as you were, you know, wondering to yourself, what, what am I ever going to play tennis again? What can you share a little bit about, like, what helped you make it through those those periods, and and where did you find motivation to? I'm sure you've done a lot of work uh, over the years to get to where you are now. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I mean, part of it too is, um, you know, I went through a lot of physical therapy and such, but I first started, you know, the condition first came on and was really at its worst, um, right around the Australian open 2017, which was an incredible, you know, comeback win for Roger that we really did not expect sort of came out of nowhere. And, um, that was amazing too, because it was a period where my legs and my feet were in such bad shape and my skin hurt so much that I really wasn't sleeping Mm. and I couldn't wear, um, I couldn't really like have fabric on the affected parts of my body. And so like I was wearing shorts, even though it was freezing cold, I live in Oregon at the time and I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't even really get in, in bed in my sheets because like the sheets bothered my skin too much. 
this is, by the way, if anyone wants to Google it, it's a rare disease, but it's called it was called it's called pansclerotic morphia. But I don't recommend it to anyone. But <laughs> anyways, all this was happening, and I wasn't sleeping at all because the condition was so awful. But if you really can't sleep, isn't it nice to have the Australian open up in the middle of the night? And um, you know, I found inspiration from a lot of different people. And I don't want to say that, like, you know, I don't want to lie and say Roger Federer was the key to me, you know, getting better, but it definitely was inspirational. And it really, he boosted me, you know, during that 2017 Australian open win, my spirits in a way that um, I don't think anybody else could have. And just following his example, I mean, he's made so many comebacks and the fact that he's, you know, instead of just saying, okay, you know what, my knee, you know, I've got problems with my knees and I'm, 38, 37, 39, these different, you know, knee injuries he's come back from and such. But he hasn't just said, you know what, I've already got a ton of money. I've got 103 titles. I have 20 majors. I'm just going to, you know, call it a career. The fact that he keeps persevering, I think is amazing. And, you know, also I'm 48 years old, so I'm a little bit older than Roger, but not that much older. And I just, I love to see a guy um, continue to excel um, as he progresses, you know, into his, hopefully he'll keep playing into 40 and beyond like uh, Ken Rosewall and Jimmy Connors and some other great players. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's totally understandable. I, I get the the kind of reinventing himself and going back to the drawing board so many times, changing rackets, changing his tactics and his strategy, you know, persevering physically as, as he's aging and, and getting older as a professional athlete. But there must be something. There must be something else. Like I, I, I told everybody listening is going to completely understand that. I totally do too. What else is it about Roger that you feel such a strong connection or draw towards mm-hmm. him that you went on this crazy adventure? What What else is it about uh, Roger specifically? Well, there's so many things that I admire about Roger. I don't want to. I don't want to go on and gush for too long. But I'll talk about you know, a little bit about what I admire about him, and then let's also talk about the why is he successful and sure. sort of like what did I what did I learn from the trip of like why I think he is who he is. But um, I mean, so many things that I like about Roger. I mean, obviously, it starts with you know the, people often call um, soccer the beautiful game, but I think you know until Roger came along, I think that you know the way that he plays tennis, he he makes it a beautiful game, even if it wasn't called that or has been known that before. Is the way that he plays the game so flawlessly, his footwork, his movement, his you know his artful you know one-handed topspin backhand, which I tried to learn but I haven't done well with. Um, you watch him play and it really makes you want to play tennis. I mean, Mm. I I love that about him. I also just his personal, the way that he behaves. Um, I like the way that he interacts with fans. I like the way that he interacts with media. I think he's funny. I think he's incredibly intelligent. He's a linguist. Um, He doesn't have, you know, he has to put up with a million people looking for autographs all the time. He treats fans in a respectful way. Um, I think he's just an, I think he's an all around great guy and he's an inspiring person. And, um, I think he's, you know, one of the most, you know, beloved athletes in the entire world. And I think that there's, there's so much to be learned from his example. I wish that so many other athletes could behave and comport themselves, you know, in the way that he do. I, I, I can't say enough good things about him. I think Roger's amazing. So when you went on your adventure and you you more or less kind of traced his his steps and learned about his backstory what do you what do you attribute that to what 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 did you learn about his development as a person and as a player during your your trip that you kind of 
were able to say, oh, like this, this makes sense. Well, I met, you know, from the book, so many people connected to Roger, people who um, knew him as a boy. You know, I went to, for example, like um, many of the tennis clubs where he practices and where he learned to play as a kid, like the old boys club in Basel, where he played from age 18, eight to 14. And I met with uh, the person who was the director of the tennis program back in those days who remembers him as a little boy. Mm. And, you know, it, there's a lot of different things in, in being able to travel there and see his physical layout and his setup. So, for example, I could go see where Roger grew up. And it's really interesting to walk the streets of his neighborhood where he grew up in a suburb called Munchenstein right outside of Basel. And it's a very middle-class neighborhood. And to be able to actually see Roger grew up in a, a street, it's a small neighborhood that has three streets of identical attached townhomes. So he did not have, a, you know, a yard, didn't have like a big, you know, garage door to hit tennis balls against or anything like that. He grew up, you know, certainly not poor, but definitely not rich. And he had this tennis club nearby that he could ride his bike to, and he would ride back and forth to practice on a bike. Um, except I guess maybe when it was, maybe not when it was snowing, but for most of the time he lived close enough. So being able to see his setup of like, okay, this is where Roger lived. Here's where his tennis club was, a five minute bike ride back and forth. And to be able to meet people at that tennis club and to understand what was successful about it, there's a lot of different things. First of all, there were other good players at this tennis club. Um, also, Switzerland has a network of tennis clubs, and they compete against each other in this interleague. So he had good competition um, where they traveled around to play against these other clubs. They also had a great national system for identifying promising youth. He was identified when he was 14 years old and was brought, he moved away a couple of hours away to this national tennis center, which I visited also. Um, so you had a good national program. You had a good local program. He also had great parents. You know, the people that I met and talked to said the really cool thing about Lynette, Lynette is his mom, is that she was a player herself. So that's why she wanted to get Roger into it is that she was a player who was ranked for her age category. I think it was like age 35 and up. She was ranked at some point in Switzerland and, um, she was involved with the tennis tournament and uh, the Swiss indoors, which is literally, you could also see the arena where the Swiss indoors is played is five minutes away from Roger's house. And so she would handle media accreditation at the tournament. Roger was a ball boy there. And she got him involved with playing at the old boys club. And she was good in that she really was supportive, but not all, not pushy at all. And everybody said that, you know, she wasn't one of those parents who was like driving him really hard and making him feel bad if he lost. And there was no pressure on him. So he had a super supportive environment. He had parents who liked tennis and who made financial sacrifices to support his career, but he didn't have a lot of pressure on him either. And so I think all of that, um, you know, sort of worked in his favor along with the, the national system. And of course, but obviously he has the God-given talent too. Um, so there's a few things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great, great insights there. And I'm curious who, who you met or what you saw on your journey that really stood out to you on the I guess personal or personality side of things. Your descriptions of meeting Roger in your book were so so familiar in terms of every other description I've ever heard from people I know that have met him or at dinner with him or other you know people in the media. And it seems like across the board, universally, everybody has an experience with him that is just warm and inviting and unassuming and you know you'd never guess that he's this like big celebrity were you were you able to kind of connect any dots on your journey as far as maybe where those traits came from for him 
You mean in terms of uh, just his, his, his personal behavior and how, how kind he is to people and such? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I said in the book, uh, not that I was looking to find someone who had something negative to say about Federer. I certainly wasn't, <laughs> but I just met so many people who had connected to him in one way or another. And, you know, funny thing about the book, uh, one of the things about the book that was great was obviously I did a ton of research to try to figure out, okay, what are the clubs where he practiced at? Where are the clubs where he played and who should I meet and such like that. But Switzerland becomes kind of a small country when you dig down into the tennis world. And I just happened to just meet people who had connections to Roger that I never could have imagined just by sheer happenstance. Like for example, meeting the, meeting the, um, the abbot of a, of a monastery where he, um, has baptized his children who is also coincidentally named Federer meeting, for example, bumping into, for example, his dentist, his former dentist in Basel at a tennis club, um, bumping into his father and the twins in a, in a hotel. Um, it becomes sort of a small country and it's really interesting. And I think that, um, you know, obviously Switzerland is not like Liechtenstein or a super tiny country, but I think that, you know, it's a small enough place. And especially when you start traveling in tennis circles, um, that I think that encourages a certain amount of accountability and friendliness. Like for example, like some of the tennis clubs that I went to were Roger practices, people told me, Oh, well he does, you know, he sweeps the court. He calls for, you know, he calls to book his court. It's not one of his handlers. It's not one of his people. He calls himself to say he's coming at whatever time. Can he get a court? he pays for his coffee, you know, like Swiss um, tennis clubs all have like cafes and restaurants to them. At least almost all of them do. And um, he'll stay like, he won't immediately leave. People will say he'll come, he'll have pasta afterwards for lunch or he'll have a coffee and he'll, he'll pay for it. He won't just expect that, you know, it's going to be on the house. And I think that, <laughs> awesome. you know, in a sort of a smaller country like that, and especially when you drill down into the tennis world of Switzerland as a small world, I think it does encourage a certain amount of accountability and friendliness because you see the same people sort of over and over again. And you're, going to the same clubs and stuff, such like that. So if you're a jerk, then suddenly everybody, you know, everybody knows that, you know, it's like, why are people friendlier in a small town than they are in a big city? Maybe. Mm. I guess it's a, it's a practical thing, right? It's uh, it goes around, comes around, right? <laughs> Some of it is practical, I would say too, but I would say also just in general, I think, you know, the Swiss are, um, you know, are, are, they're not a gregarious and outgoing lot, but they are very friendly and, and mm. a super, you know, super helpful and so I think that Roger sort of embodies that sort of Swiss, like good Swiss manners, if you know what I mean. Sure. The politeness. So yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Dave, from your perspective as a as a player, somebody who loves to be on the court yourself and, and hit the ball. And you've had, you know, over the years with your your physical, you know, struggles, that that big goal in front of you of, of returning to the court and being able to enjoy the the sport again and never take it for granted again, which is uh, such a beautiful you know lesson that that you've learned along the way. I'd love to hear from your perspective as a player. What have your what have your what have your biggest takeaways been from Roger's journey that you're implementing yourself on the courts and not necessarily in like a some kind of high performance, like competitive way, but what, what comes to mind for you first? Okay. So there's definitely a lot of things that I should be learning from Roger's game and should be implementing <laughs> from it, but have I actually done so yet? No, let's just say I'll, these are the things that I I'm aspiring to try to take from his experience. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you one example, a club that I went to where I went, one of the places where I made my tennis club is a, a small place called tennis club Felsberg, which is in a beautiful 
uh, part of Switzerland near a town called Kur, which is a, just a beautiful mountain. Um, I'm not going to call it a hamlet, but let's say a small, a small city uh, that's about a half hour away from one of Roger's primary residences, which is in a town called Valbella, which is a skiing ski resort town. And um, at this tennis club, Felsberg, I spent almost a whole day with a wonderful gentleman named Tony Polterra, who is a radio morning host, and he's also the president of the tennis club. And he's interacted with Roger because Roger has practiced at this tennis club. And one of the things that really struck me that Tony told me was how meticulous Federer's preparation is before he's coming to a tournament. Let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, Roger was coming back, and his first tournament was going to be in Madrid, the ATP Masters Tournament in Madrid. And so Roger determined that he wanted to practice at this tennis club, Felsberg, because it was almost the same altitude that Madrid is. And so what he, he's not just blundering into tournaments with, you know, oh, let's just show up and, you know, whatever. So he figured out, okay, the altitude of Madrid is the same as it is over in, in Felsberg. So this is the club I want to practice at because the altitude is the same. Then he determined what balls they were going to be using at that tournament. And then he had that same type of ball, lots of them, shipped ahead of time so that it arrived a couple of days before his first practice session at this place. And then he determined who was in the field, what the surface was and such, and he determined, okay, these are, I want to invite X, Y, and Z, you know, players. I, I was going to call them uh, juniors, but they weren't juniors, but he had like three or four young, uh, young players he wanted to practice with that week. And he specifically chose those players, looking at the draw of who else was going to be in the tournament and who he might face and who's good on that surface and such. And then he booked had, you know, he had arranged for them for these three young players to stay and had the hotel book for them near this club and everything like that. And what really struck Tony and what he imparted to me was the meticulousness of Roger's preparation. Hmm. And I thought, this is something I think really all tennis players could learn. Of course, those of us who are just casual players can't go to the lengths that he, that he, that he would. But I think we could all learn a little bit of something about that. Couldn't we, of, of trying to determine um, where are we going to be playing if we are in some sort of a junior tournament? You know, have we practiced on that type of court before? Have we practiced on that court before? Who are we going to be playing against? Can we practice against somebody just like them? What sort of balls are going to be used? You know what I mean? Um, so I think, I don't know if I've necessarily implemented any of that yet, but it sinks in a little bit where you think about, um, just adding a little bit more to your preparation time. And then I think also terms, just in terms of his game itself, um, I really, uh, you know, aspire to be, um, as aggressive as Roger is. I mean, there's nothing better to me. I feel I'm like a baseliner at heart because I guess I'm not really that good at net and my movement's not that good. But to me, there's nothing that feels better than punctuating, you know, a point at the net if you can do that successfully. And so every time I watch Roger, literally almost every single match, I resolve to come to the net more. <laughs> and uh, I'm still really not that good at it, but I just always enjoy watching because you think this is this is such when he's really at his best. And when I got to see him win his tenth Swiss um, indoors in uh, in November. I mean, he just absolutely decimated the field. He didn't lose a set going to the title, and he was just in vintage form. You know when he's really on, when he's playing on an indoor court in front of his home arena? I mean, when he's playing flawlessly, this is like a textbook example. If you watch his matches in that tournament, the last few of them, it's a textbook example of how to play attacking, aggressive tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's been stretches in his career where it just seems like he's completely invincible and not even conscious of what he's doing is it's, it's like, he's just some kind of uh machine, but 
moves much more beautifully than a machine, obviously. Um, yeah, it's incredible to watch him when, when he's really in the zone like that. Your uh, description of him being so meticulous in his preparation and all the little details and that right down to like picking practice partners that mimic other people in the draw reminds me of, I've heard stories from a couple different people about how often he's recruited left-handed training partners specifically, obviously to try to prepare for a particular, you know, rival of his and so I'm curious if you heard any other stories like that that kind of illustrated his willingness to, I guess, seek out his sticking points or obstacles, you know, uh, over the, the path of his career. Are, are there any other stories that come to mind as far as him meeting head on his his challenges to try to reach the next level? Oh, I'm not sure if one of those stories comes to mind, but you know, I'm just thinking about because I'm thinking about Tennis Club Felsberg now, and I'm thinking about a little uh, a little story that I'll tell I'll share with your listeners. Uh, something that Tony told me about Roger, um, which I thought was very telling about his character. You know how um, oftentimes Roger uh, tends to cry in an emotional moment, sure. usually after he wins a tournament, but occasionally um, when he loses too, like um, a couple of times to Nadal at the Australian Open and in other cases. Um, Tony told me a story, which I thought was really interesting. You know, Roger built this dream, dream home with a, with a, with another home next to it, a guest, a guest house for his parents in uh, Valbella, which I talk about, which is one of his primary residences, which is in the mountains of Switzerland. And, um, in Switzerland, it's traditional when you build a house for the builders afterwards, when it's complete to host a party and to, you know, to invite the, the new owners to that party to sort of christen the house. And it's sort of really the first time that the that the new owner sees the house in its you know in its completed state. And Tony knew somebody who was working for the company um, that built Roger's house and the house the guest house for his parents. And um, he said that um, Roger got to the party and um, he got there and he looked around and he saw the house and it was they expected him to sort of give a little speech or to say something. And um, he was so choked up that he couldn't speak that he was crying. I thought. It's really, he said that um, eventually Roger did say something, and um, but they said that he was so um, like humbled by his success that he could see this beautiful house, like the fruits of all of his hard work over the years. And he got choked up just thinking about, wow, I can't believe that I have been lucky enough and successful enough in life to, um, you know, to have earned enough money to have built something incredible like this. Mm. And I thought it spoke to, to, to me, to Roger's humility and that he, he doesn't really take his success and all of the fans he has and everything that's come to him necessarily for granted. I think he, I think he appreciates, you know, how lucky he is, but also how hard he's worked to, to sort of get where he's at. And also his, you know, his ability to, his willingness to show his humanity and his weakness. Here he was surrounded by a bunch of guys, you know, construction sort of guys, many of them too, who probably aren't used to, you know, being in the company of somebody like Roger Federer, but let alone seeing him cry. I think his willingness to show his humanity and his vulnerability is one of the reasons why he has so many fans and why he's so beloved around the world, because he's not, he's not a machine, you know, he's not aloof. He's a human being just like the rest of us. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, hearing you describe the the house and the construction, it just reminds me of the the pictures. Uh, lots of really beautiful photography in the in the book. Did did you take the pictures, Dave? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, a lot of 
really incredible architecture yeah. and uh, scenery and uh, during your, your trip. Uh, what image, I'm kind of a little bit of an amateur a photographer myself, what, which of these images is your, your favorite and which one do you think kind of tells the, the I guess, the, the best story for you? When, in other words, like which image when you see it just kind of communicates the most about your, your uh, adventure? Oh, that's a really good question. I have to think about that. So many images. Let me think about that. Um, I'm just leafing through the book as we talk right now. I don't know. You know, there's one, and this is actually not an image that I took, but I'm just looking through the book here. And um, Madeline Barlocker, who was the head of the junior tennis program at Old Boys, whom I met with while Roger was there, she gave me um, a yearbook from the tennis club from around the time when Roger was a youth there. And it has a whole page of, um, of photos of Roger from when he was a little boy lifting trophies. And there's yeah. one picture of Roger in here, which I reproduced in the book. It's on page, uh, I think, 79. But um, it's a picture of Roger when he was, let's say, about, I believe about, it says 1991, so he had been 10 years old at the time, lifting a trophy and the big smile on his face as a boy in a sweatsuit lifting the trophy. The reason why, um, even though you know, I'm just taking here a photo of this yearbook, but the reason why this photo speaks to me about the journey is that in the press conference after Roger won the tournament, I was able to show him this photo of himself and to ask him and to say, you know, the smile on your face and the way you looked hoisting that trophy, you know, even though you were 10 years old, you you hoisted this trophy literally a couple miles from where we are now. I asked him, you know, has the feeling of like hoisting these trophies changed (laughs) a lot for you between the age of 10 and now he was, you know, 38 at the time. And I showed him, you know, the picture and had a chance to ask his reaction about that. And it was just, it was really interesting because he, he looked at it and he, he remembered the photo. He remembered the feeling. (laughs) And, um, he said that, that it, the interesting thing was, is how, how much it feels the same. And is that, you know, whether you're 10 years old winning the local tournament or whether you're, you know, winning Wimbledon or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying he didn't, I'm paraphrasing him. He didn't say that it's the same thing to win Wimbledon as to win a local tournament. But it, you know, it, the, the, it struck me that I was able to have this opportunity to, to ask him that question and to, and to hear from him that, you know, that he's such a competitive guy that he's been wanting to do this since he was literally a little boy. That's really, that's really beautiful. Uh, it's uh, amazing that it's, and and you can really kind of sense that I think. And you alluded to this earlier, Dave, about how in touch he is with how how much he's accomplished, and yet how you know blessed he is and grateful he is for the support that he has and the fan base that he has. You really get a strong sense that he really, truly, genuinely appreciates. Um, all of it, you know, like every moment of it, which makes him so easy to root for and makes him such a, such a likable person. What other, what other things kind of jumped out to you during your interaction with him uh, when you got to show him that picture Mm -hmm. and uh, how long did you get to spend with him? Well, these are just in press conferences after his matches, but the cool thing was I was actually the only, I was the only, um, accredited media there whose first language was English and they always start with English. Oh, wow. And so I was the only person who wanted to ask questions in English. So every, after every match, I get to ask him usually a couple of questions because no one else wanted to ask questions in English. So it was sort of like, I felt like I had him sort of to myself as for the English speaking part of the wow. press conferences, which is one of the really cool things about going to a smaller tournament in a foreign country 
um, where English isn't the first language. So that was really kind of cool. But what strikes you about him is that even though I'd met him once before too, just briefly, and also had asked him questions in press conferences before, but he has a tremendous presence about him. When he walks in the room, it's sort of like, you know, oftentimes reporters are waiting for a very long period of time for the players to come in, sometimes hours, and everyone's talking and on their phones and chattering. But when he walks in the room, there's like a real hush in the room. And it is almost like everyone puts their phones away. And even before he starts speaking, the room is completely quiet. And he has a tremendous presence. You, everyone wants to look at him. All eyes turn to him. And he is very good about keeping eye contact with you, which is really nice because you feel like when you ask him a question, he is listening to you keenly. He's sizing you up who you are, why you're asking the question. And when he's answering the question, he makes eye contact with you throughout the answer, which I appreciate because there's a lot of athletes who are just mumbling something and looking at their phone, looking down at their phone, or they're just trying to get through it as quickly as possible. But he's (laughs) such a professional. You feel like he is taking these things seriously and you feel as though he's showing you respect. I mean, he may not always give you the answer that you're seeking. Uh, There was at least one case where I asked him something and I felt like he didn't really want to answer the question. Um, cause I was asking him about some of his favorite courts to play in Switzerland where he really likes to practice. And clearly he did not want to divulge <laughs> that information because, because he likes to keep his practice locations, um, you know, da- on the down low. Although I found, sure. I think many of them anyways, but he didn't want to answer the question. I don't think, however, he answers you in such a respectful way and makes eye contact with you that you feel satisfied. You don't feel slighted. Yeah. I've had similar um, similar experiences myself. Uh, years ago, I, I was fortunate to have press passes for uh, the BMP Paribas and Indian Wells and also the Cincinnati uh, ATP and WTA uh, tournament that happens there every year. And I would camp out similarly uh, to the press room story you just told around the tennis court that he was supposed to practice on along with hundreds of other people that would get there like an hour ahead of time just to be able to be close and, and watch him hit a couple balls. And yeah, that, that experience of having the, the energy and like all the, the bodies around the court is so far in advance and then having him actually walk out onto the court and, as you're saying, uh, address, actually address the crowd, you know, talk to people afterwards, uh, spend time and sign autographs, even though he didn't necessarily have to do any of that. Always just felt like a special... Oh experience no no question and i'll tell you too that i um just recently had an opportunity to write about two federer super fans for the atp tour website which i think is going to be coming out right around his comeback and uh, one of the fans is from india so a woman from india and another one is from belgium and these women have traveled to see federer in dozens of tournaments around the world awesome. and they're such super fans that they camp out at wimbledon every year for two weeks in a tent to see him and wow. not only do they do that but they wait at his practice courts they, after a match ends, they will wait outside of the arena for literally hours to try to get a photo of him. And sometimes they, sometimes they're literally waiting for three, four, in one case, I remember the woman told us she waited for five hours to see him in Rome and to have a 15 second interaction where they take his photo <laughs> or whatever. But the amazing thing is that, you know, you ask me, well, really, was it worth it? Cause I'm an impatient person. I would never wait five hours to see someone. And they tell me, oh, it's always worth it because he's always nice to us. So it's like they're willing to wait hours to have a 15, 20-second interaction with him. And they've encountered him dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And if you ask these women 
well, is he ever rude or is he ever brush? No, he's never rude. He never brushes past us. He always treats us respectfully. And these women have, it's incredible how many photos they have of themselves with Roger. I mean, this woman, this woman in India, she must have like 30 photos of her and Roger together. And she told me at <laughs> awesome. one point, she said, she said one time when I met him, he called me by my first name. Her name wow. is Sunita. And she said, he turned to me and he said, oh, hi, Sunita. And she said, like, I almost fainted. I couldn't believe <laughs> he, re- he remembered my name. And uh, he's, he's, he's really kind of a, he's, an, he's a pretty amazing person in that way. Love it. I've got two more questions here for you, Dave, and then we'll start to wrap things up. I want to be respectful of your time. First of all, I, I'm curious if we've already touched on this or not. You, you were kind enough to send me an email with a, a couple of discussion points that you thought would be relevant to our, our, uh, our audience, the people that are listening to us today. And one of them I obviously have to bring up, and that is uh, you wrote, uh, what I learned from my trip about why Roger became successful. Have we touched on that already, or is it something we haven't talked about? Uh, yeah, no, I think we did touch upon that a little bit in terms of the, the junior development program and the living in the close proximity and having supportive parents and such. I think gotcha. we did touch on that one. Okay. So you think uh, just the uh, the convenience of being able to bike to the courts and the support of his the support system around him of his mom, who's a player, you attribute that as being kind of the biggest uh, factor? Yeah, and also the whole the whole setup of the of the way the Swiss uh, tennis program is set up. I mean, you have a country there aren't public courts generally, but what you have is lots and lots of very good um, private clubs, and these clubs compete against each other in an interleague. And they have he had very high level competition, and the fact that they identified him and identify promising juniors and and support them and bring them all together in one location. And the fact that he was willing to make that move to move. Um, uh, from Basel down into the French-speaking part of Switzerland, Beale, uh, which is a couple of hours to the south. So I think all of those things. But of course, you know, having that was the foundation it started from. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that there's not going to be a whole bunch of other Roger Federer's coming out of Switzerland. Um, you still have to be born with like an incredible amount of talent and to have that mental toughness that he has. Because we know, too, that like being a really talented tennis player isn't going to necessarily win you 20 majors. There's been a lot of talented tennis players who haven't won any majors, right? Absolutely. So I think it's, you know, his brain and his mental toughness and his ability to remain composed during, during, you know, key, key moments of pressure. None of that has anything to do with the Swiss, you know, tennis system, but he had that foundation there, which is a good base to start from. Awesome. Well, I'd like to, to end by coming back around to you and, and your game because this show focuses mostly on on skill development and improvement and trying to develop to the next level of the game. Uh, You very briefly earlier in our our conversation mentioned your attempt to develop a Roger Federer-esque one-handed backhand. Tell us a little bit about that and why in our our email correspondence did you say that it was a a failed attempt? What happened? (laughs) Well, you know, as I said... Um, you know, so my comeback started in Switzerland. I started able to start on the hallowed ground that I wanted to competing on courts where Roger played and it was good, but you know, I, I explained my situation to my opponents and they weren't competitive matches. We were around and they didn't move me around the court too badly. But after I came back, I felt like, you know, the experiment had gone fairly well. 
Um, I wasn't playing great, but I thought, okay, this is great. So I joined a local tennis club. I had recently moved to St. Petersburg. And so I joined a club here and I specifically chose one, as I said, that had a ball machine because that's how I wanted to, I thought would be a good way to sort of come back. And so that's what I did. I started training on the ball machine and like just hitting with people and such. And then of course, when you're on a ball machine and nobody's around, you can really sort of experiment with some different things that aren't too embarrassing. Like I would, I've always had a two-handed backhand, two-handed topspin backhand, and a one-hand slice. And I wouldn't really just want to just start trying to rip one-handed, you know, backhand topspin just against someone because it'd be too sort of embarrassing. But when you're on a court by yourself with the only machine to judge you, um, you think, well, why not? So there was a period of like a few weeks when I was trying to just hit one-hand topspin backhands and I was studying um, Roger's backhand, like in slow motion on YouTube, YouTube's an amazing thing. You find so many interesting stuff on there. And, um, I thought, you know, if I just want to, I just want to have some, some sort of lasting souvenir of my trip. So I thought, who cares at this stage? Why don't I just switch to a one hand top spin backhand? Even if I, if I'll be, I, I'll be probably, it'll hurt my game. I'll be a more inferior player, but it'll just be cool to, to just have happened a new shot at age 48 why not um but after a few weeks honestly i just thought no this is just this is just not working it's too extreme of a grip change for me I get too technical but i feel like trying to trying to switch from a two hand to a one hand at age 48 when you've already got all these health and mobility problems i just it's, i think it's a problem i realized that i don't need but i still occasionally do it just but only on the phone machine. nobody else is around but Sounds like a, your kind of personal connection time with the the Roger Federer game it hit those those handful of of good feeling one handed backhand uh, topspin shots. Hopefully yeah. there's a hopefully there's a couple in there every once in a while where you're like, oh yeah, that's yeah. The and one. when it works, I mean, and when it works, it's so much fun. Like I feel great. Like when I actually can rip one successfully <laughs> yeah. and it actually works, it feels really good. But then, you know, out of 10, only when only three of them are going in, then you realize, all right. And then a few of them, you look completely ridiculous and they go way out. So you think, all right, let's go back. Where's my two-hander? <laughs> totally understand. Well, Dave, it's been a pleasure talking to you. For those of you listening, you if so you've much. enjoyed any piece of this conversation at all, the insights that, that Dave has into uh, Roger's history, his background, his development, his his journey, his journey as a as a player, and kind of where he came from, and what makes him who he is. I highly recommend picking up a, a copy of Footsteps of Federer. Dave, where's the the best place to do that? Where where can we find out more about the book? Yeah, so um, you know the book. If you like to support local bookstores, which I hope that you do, you can order it through your local bookstore. Um, of course, it's also available, you know, at the you know the major chains as well too, like Barnes and Noble or Amazon and such. You can find out more about it also on my website, which is um, just my name, Dave Seminara, and that's spelled like the word seminar with an A at the end. So it's DaveSeminara.com, and I have other you know writing lots of other tennis uh, articles on my website too that I've written over the years as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking at the website right now and. If if you've enjoyed any piece of this conversation, I highly recommend you, you go to Dave's website. I've, I'm enjoying the book a lot, Dave. Like I mentioned before, the the photographs are beautiful. The the storytelling is is really excellently done. Um, really kind of draws you into the the narrative of uh, being in the moment in each of those locations. Um, I'd love to go back to Europe. I know you've traveled extensively, and uh, hopefully someday I'll get to see that part of the world 
uh, as well. So thank you for sharing your your journey with us, Dave. Any kind of final thoughts or is there anything we we didn't talk about that you think is important to uh, mention about mm-hmm. the book? I just like to tell people too that uh, the book is not all it's not all serious there's you know I try to have a lot of fun in there too like I had some really weird and unusual experiences in Switzerland too and I tried to relay some of those like for example um, you know there is a red light district in Basel which I didn't know about and we got home really (laughs) late one one night from a tournament and I was accosted by the most aggressive prostitutes that I have ever <laughs> encountered before in my life. And of course, I fought them off tooth and nail. I was sorry I did not have my tennis racket to fight them off, but um, that happened. Uh, I thought that I was in one of Roger's neighborhoods looking at one of his houses, and I did not get close to it. I swear I was completely across the street, but I did want to walk by it just to get a feel for his neighborhoods. And there was like a security van that came by, and I thought I was going to be arrested, and thank God that I was not. But um, I just want to stress to people that uh, it's actually a really fun book and it's, um, you know, you'll learn a lot about Roger, but you'll also learn a lot about Switzerland and Swiss culture, but hopefully you'll have a few laughs too. And I hope that you found some amusement in it as well. I love it. Dave, thank you so much for your journey. Thank you for sharing it with us uh, through this book. I know many people listening are going to get a lot out of it. And uh, thank you for coming on and, and talking to me today. I, I really Enjoyed it very much. Me too. Thanks again, Ian. See you. You bet. Take care. And so, care. Uh, again, everybody, uh, it's DaveSeminara.com. Uh, check out Dave's uh, other writings and uh, make sure to pick up a, a copy of Footsteps of Fetter. For more free game improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.